This is Ralph Fletcher, and you're listening to the New Teacher Podcast. The New Teacher Podcast. Get inspired. If you're a new teacher interested in hearing about the latest tips and tricks to inspire you in the classroom, you've come to the right place. The New Teacher Podcast features interviews with award-winning classroom teachers, the latest authors, and educational leaders recognized for their proven teaching techniques and strategies. Hear the stories of their success and failure. To listen to past episodes, view show notes, or to contact us, please visit our website at newteacher.org. Now here's your host, Anthony Arno. Hello and welcome to the New Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Arno, and I'm so glad that you can join us here today. This is the show where we talk with outstanding teachers of the year and the latest educational authors to inspire you in the classroom. Well, this is it, our 30th episode, and my very special guest today is Ralph Fletcher, pioneer of the Writer's Notebook and many, many other books helping teachers become better at what they do in the classroom. I know you're going to enjoy my talk with Ralph helping teachers become better at what they do. Hey, I want to let you know that the next time here on the podcast, we'll have the current National Teacher of the Year, Mandy Manning. Mandy teaches reading and math to newly arriving refugee and immigrant students in the state of Washington. I'll be playing a clip of my talk with Mandy at the end of today's show. I would love to hear from you, whether you're a brand new teacher or a veteran. I'd like to hear how your school year is going so far, or if you want to leave me a comment on a past show or guest. If you visit our website, newteacher.org, you'll see exactly how you can reach me. And now, here's today's show. My guest today is a pioneer in teaching teachers how to teach writing. He's written over 40 books and has been involved with the writing project at Teachers College. Please welcome to the New Teacher Podcast, Mr. Ralph Fletcher. Hi, Ralph. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the New Teacher Podcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Can you tell us a personal story about a teacher that might have inspired you as a student, and what do you remember the most about them? You know, I think that um, I I had uh, some teachers that um, kind of, I had a middle school teacher named Mr. Adams, and I think that was the first time that somebody was really interested in me, uh, in my writing. So, um, that was a memory that, you know, was important because a lot of times I get a lot of negative reinforcement about my writing because I had pretty bad penmanship. So that's what I heard a lot of about instead of just somebody who really actually enjoyed reading it. And does Mr. Adams know that you went on to become an established teacher and writer yourself? I don't know. I mean, we sort of lost track, track, so maybe not. (laughs) Do you remember the exact moment that you decided you wanted to become a teacher? Well, um, it's funny, you know, um, I'm not even exactly sure if I see myself as a teacher, although I certainly do teach teachers how to teach writing, and I work with kids a lot. Um, I guess I see myself as a writer first and maybe a teacher second. Um, but, um, you know, I come from a family of teachers, I realized. that You know, my grandfather was a taught high school English for 40 years, 44 years in wow. Fall River, Mass. My parents were both teachers. They met at um, Bridgewater State Teaching College. And, um, you know, a lot of my uncles and aunts. So it's sort of in our in our blood, I suppose. Um, and, you know, if I hadn't been, if I hadn't become a writer, I probably would have ended up teaching high school English, or, or it's very possible I would have. Um, I would say that, you know, when I started working at the writing project at Teachers College, um, having the chance to go around, work with kids, seeing how they reacted, had a big impact on me. And I realized that um, it was something really wonderful about working with, you know, young, inquisitive minds like that. And how did you first become involved in the writing project at Teachers College? Well, um, it was sort of, uh, as, as so many of these, these things are, sort of serendipitous. I um, was getting a master's degree in writing, an MFA, Master's of Fine Arts, um, at Columbia, and Columbia has one of the better programs in the country. I would say one of the more you know, respected programs in the country. And so 
So while I was there, you know, um, somebody made the comment that an MFA is a terminal degree, which sounds sort of ominous. Uh, and, you know, what that really means is you don't really kind of go on from there. You know, it's something that will allow you to teach creative writing. But um, somebody mentioned um, that you could, you know, walk down, walk up four blocks to Teachers College where there's some interesting stuff happening on the teaching of writing. And as it turned out, um, I went in to Lucy Calkins' uh, office, and Lucy had just started at Teachers College. Um, We were both uh, young. She was, you know, she's, I think, a year older than me, but but quite young. And um, I had missed the first two classes, and I, you know, was interested in taking her class on the teaching of writing. And she sort of made me stew and kind of like twist in the wind for about five minutes. (laughs) But then then she, but then she eventually let me into the class, and um, you know, that's kind of what happened. Um, And I will say this: that uh, Lucy Calkins. And that first teaching of writing class was really um, a woman on fire, and she, wow. and, and she really, she really radiated that passion in teaching writing. Um, that was really, um, really remarkable, and really, I would say, you know, I went to a Dartmouth College, which is one of the fine schools, but I, I don't think I ever got had anybody quite so passionate about what they did as Lucy. And she's still at it today. Yes, yeah, she is. Wow. So as a writing student, you did spend some time in Tonga and Sierra Leone. What was that like? Well, um, I guess I had a wanderlust to see the world. Um, so when I was in college, um, I looked for some of the more outlandish uh, foreign study programs that they offered. And they had the one in Tonga, which is in the South Pacific, um, and then the one the next year in West Africa, of course, uh, Sierra Leone uh, had a horrible civil war some years after that, and uh, luckily I was there before that, um, and I didn't see uh, any of, the, of that, um, you know, carnage and, and things. But um, yeah, it, you know, travel opened up my eyes and certainly made me realize that the world is a big place, that there's many different perspectives to see and to understand. There are people who have unbelievable, uh, unbelievably simple lives compared to uh, what we have in the United States. Um, and I also uh, did a lot of writing when I was there, you know, both in letters and sort of my own writing. And I think that it, um, I realized that making pictures with words was one of the ways that you could communicate these experiences, um, which are hard to, you know, a lot of times you come back from a trip like that and you know, people have a sh- you know a short attention span. You know, you've gone through this amazing experience for ten weeks, and they they want five minutes, and then they're done. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so um, yeah, it was great, and I still, um, you know, I when I just just jumping ahead for a second, when I got out of school, um, I took a job leading tour groups around the world oh, for neat. about six years. Yeah. Um, I mean, it wasn't a very glamorous job <laughs> in the sense of what we did. We just sort of you know worried about luggage and you know, transfers and stuff, but. Um, so I continued my love of travel and uh, exploring the world. And by the way, I should mention that when I started doing that, I started keeping a writer's notebook um, to kind of you know write down those nuggets, those moments, those indelible things that I didn't want to forget. Now, when I began my teaching career back in 1991 at PS 238 in Brooklyn, you wrote one of your earliest books, which I had never even heard of until I began reading up on you. And that book was called Walking Trees. Tell our listeners what that book was about. <laughs> I'm smiling to myself because Walking Trees was one of those books uh, of mine that, you know, was, to, to say that it was not a bestseller would be uh, an understatement. <laughs> it, it wasn't not a book that sold that well, but that's okay. Um, it was an important book for me. Uh, it really was about my first year in New York City schools, working with them. And, um, you know, it's published by Heinemann, but, and as you probably know Heinemann is sort of known for very practical teacher books and this book in some ways falls between kind of like a novel and almost like a memoir about writing you know about teaching writing um so um it's a it's a personal story a lot a lot of things happened in my life that year I my first marriage uh, broke up and I write about that a little bit um but just you know in some ways talking to you I realized that going into those New York City schools for me was as alien and wonderful and exotic as going into uh, a small village in Sierra Leone. <laughs> really? You know, um, really? Yeah, just, just you know, I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i a suburban guy, so um, I really didn't grow up with the city schools. So 
you know, the giant classrooms, 40 kids in a kindergarten classroom, and sometimes you'd have broken doors and broken, you know, this and windows, and some of the schools and some of the boroughs were, were pretty tough. Yeah. But the, the teachers were very passionate and, and, and um, you know, uh, eager to learn. And those city kids who, you know, who come from all around the world are really a wonderful, uh, you know, resource also. I really loved um, connecting with them. So anyway, um, that's what that book is about. Um, and, um, you know, I think it sort of uh, was a book that um, allowed me to kind of get a toehold in the world of, of teaching writing, because even though the book didn't sell well, some of the influential people in our field read it and, and, and um, told me that they found it to be uh, an important book. In, oh, in that must have made you feel good. Yeah. So you may not be known for walking trees, but you're definitely known for writer's notebook. Tell our new teacher listeners what exactly is a writer's notebook. Yeah, um, a writer's notebook, um, and I've written um, really three different resources, but the one you just mentioned is my best-selling book of, of all the books I've published. Um, although my son likes to remind me that I did not invent the writer's notebook, which is very true. There's certainly uh, notebooks have been around, used by writers for many years. But what I suggest in, in the school context is that... Um, giving kids a blank notebook, which is really nothing more than a, um, some pages, some blank pages, and just inviting them to use that notebook to collect, uh, to react, to write down things that are important. Um, also, just to use it as a scrapbook to collect, you know, photographs and ticket stubs and, uh, you know, funny things that they see in a menu where the word is misspelled. And um, it's a way to really live like a writer. Many writers keep a writer's notebook. And um, I like to say that it's a high-comfort, low-risk place where kids can write and find their stride as writers. And it gives kids unparalleled freedom to write, which in this current context of um, more restrictive and, frankly, more academic writing that we're seeing in elementary school and middle school, I think it's, um, it's an antidote to that. It gives kids a chance to really find the power of writing for themselves. And does it matter if it's a bounded book or if it's a loosely finder? Does that matter? Well, um, I'm not sure. You know, um, I've had a lot of discussions, and, and you're not really asking this, but even the question of what about an electronic notebook? You know, that today, be, sure. You know, the way kids are are going in some ways. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think there's different ways to do it. Um, you know, I think there's something nice about um, a, a little booklet. A physical booklet, it's, it's sort of retro, um, but I think that there's something simple about you've got a notebook, you've got a pen or pencil, and you write down things that are important to you. And, um, you know, one of my mentors, he, I live in uh, Durham, New Hampshire, where the University of New Hampshire is, and I've, although I have no affiliation with U- University of New Hampshire, but one of the, you know, the some of the big people in writing were here, Don Murray and Don Graves. And Don Gra- Murray used to say that one of the important things about a writer is that writers react. And the notebook gives you a place to react to to your world. Because everybody has ideas. Oh, I can write a song about that. I can write a poem about that. But the writer takes that step, takes up the pencil, and actually jots something down. And I think that that's one of the habits we can teach. So I don't really think it's that important for the format. I mean, frankly, if you're the kind of kid that likes to doodle and make pictures, maybe you want an online notebook. Right. Um, but I will say that I mean, I've got a lot to say about it, but I'll just say one quick thing, which is that I think that there's sometimes teachers feel the need to try to, like, control the notebook a little bit. And um, I would say to the extent that the notebook becomes our thing, it loses power for kids. Somehow it has to feel like it's their place, their arena, their playground um, to, you know, use language in ways that make sense to them. So um, I think we, as teachers, we can guide it. We can model our own notebook. But ultimately, it's their, it's their, uh, their tool. And that's what I like when I see writers' notebooks that students have created that are decorated with interests that they have. Yeah. How many do you have? I don't know. I mean, I have about I keep about one a year, so I have a f- several dozen. And, <laughs> um, and and my year, by the way, is probably this is where I sort of, I guess I am a teacher because my year sort of starts in the summer. I get a new notebook, and I'm looking forward to the the fall with the year sort of starts. So I'm on, I'm on that rhythm of the school year and then I keep it during the year and then usually in the summer I'll start a new one. And then what's it like when you flip back to a book from maybe 10, 20 years ago? <laughs> well, um, 
Somebody once said that it's important that we're all on speaking terms with the earlier versions of ourselves. <laughs> so you, 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 you do get to see aspects of yourself that you forgot about. And um, uh, I'll often find things. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I was going, we're, you know, we're like everybody else trying to pare down our stuff. And I was going through my, my, one of my youngest son's writer's notebooks, and I found a poem in his notebook that I had written that I totally forgot about. Wow. So a lot of times you'll go back and you'll find things. And uh, even if you don't use it immediately in your notebook, um, I think there's something nice about collecting those moments because, you know, the, uh, life kind of has a way of going by, but the no, that, you know, the, if you keep a notebook, you're able to kind of grab on a few of those gems. Yeah. Now, another book you wrote was Guy Wright. What is the uh, story behind that? How did you come to write that? Well, um, I have an interest in... Um, encouraging boy writers and um i've written two books on it i've written a book for teachers called boy writers uh, reclaiming their voices with stenhouse and then and then i also wrote a book for actually that you could give to boys called uh, guy right and you know it's a book that you could actually hand to a boy that wanted to become a better writer and i, I would say the sweet spot for that book is grades oh i don't know three through eight ish maybe something like that um and um what i did what i did for that book is that <clears throat> I think that a lot of the times the things that boys want to write about are discouraged to write in school. You know, one of the words that boys hear a lot is that word inappropriate. Right. And that's a, it's kind of a, a way that boys are censored a lot. And, um, in this book, Guy Write, I try to look frankly at what boys wanted to write about, the kind of genres and subjects. And I tried to help them do it better while still, you know, um, walking that line. So, for example, there's a, there's a chapter on violent writing. There's, there's a chapter on, uh, free, I call them freaky stories or scary stories. Uh, my favorite chapter title is called um, Riding the Vomit Comet, How to Write About <laughs> Disgusting Stuff. <laughs> and um, and I use a lot of examples from other books that I think uh, authors who do them well. For example, um, John Cheska's wonderful memoir, Knucklehead, uh, has some really good, you know, kind of... Uh, disgusting writing, but it's done very well, if, if you can say that. And um, I think that as mentor texts, you know, a lot of times I think the mentor texts that we use in the writing classroom are, you know, highbrow literature, you know, the ones that win the Caldecott and the Newbery. Right. And and I certainly admire those books, and I've uh, I've been inspired by them. But I think that sometimes the books that boys really um, are drawn to are also the edgy books, the books with that sort of sly humor subversive uh, spoofs, and um, so I tried to uh, show some of those as models. Um, you know, I've been writing about this topic for several years, and it's one of those things that I would have maybe predicted I would have kind of gotten tired of and moved on to something else, but... Have you? I, you know, I really don't. I, <laughs> I, I, I find that it's interesting. I find that it's a continual problem. Um, you know, girls outscoring boys on test scores and writing by about 20 percentage points. And... Um, you know, I think that it's, I find it a continuing, a continuing interest in this subject. Um, and, you know, as you know, being in education, education, if you go to an educational conference for teachers in grades K through six, and you look around the, the auditorium, what do you think, 90, 90%, 95% are female? Yeah. And so um, one of the things that I say, and of course this is also, you have to say this um, tactfully and delicately, being a guy myself, but is that maybe we don't get the boys because so many teachers are females. And, you know, to, to the credit of teachers, they say to me, you know what, Ralph, 99% of the teachers have come up to me afterwards and say, you know, you are absolutely right. I just don't, I, I don't understand them. I think that I tend to sort of push them in a way that is wrong, but I just don't understand. And so I think that sometimes we need to remember that schools are a place that we encounter other ethnicities, other uh, you know, age levels as well as other genders, and, and we have to sort of try to understand our students. Absolutely. Um, as a fifth-grade teacher, very often I'm, I'm the first male teacher my students have ever had. Right. Why do you think there's such a discrepancy with boys compared to girls when it comes to writing? Well, um, that is a rich question, and that is actually uh, the question that drove the book that I wrote, um, Boy Writers. So it's hard to sort of... Uh, condense that into a sound bite. Um, but I think that um, 
Well, in schools, and even like the work in the Teachers College Writing Project, I would say, and that I was part of and that I'm proud of, but I think that we kind of, maybe without meaning to, we kind of made a hierarchy where there's certain kinds of writing that we really valued and we put at the top, and then we put the other kind of writing that would be like less valuable and maybe not so great at the bottom. And the kind of the writing that would be privileged and valued in the, the top of the hierarchy would be writing that's confessional, very emotional, sincere, um, you know, heartfelt, um, which is oftentimes the writing that girls are really good at. Yeah. And, and the writing that's maybe kind of snarky and sarcastic and edgy and slightly uh, irreverent is uh, we maybe cast a colder eye on that kind of writing. And that's the kind of writing that often boys excel at or really want to do. Um, I should say, by the way, that there's a lot of exceptions to all this stuff that we, you know, whenever you talk about gender, and you, you have to be careful not to be sexist. And in some ways, I'm an exception myself. I mean, I have written very emotional um, you know, memoir pieces that are heart, heartfelt. So, you know, I don't think that boys are always the the ones that are the snarky ones and the girls are always the emotional ones. Boys feel feelings very deeply, um, too. So, um, but, so that's one thing. And um, I would also say that, um, you know, this is just something to think about, which is that in the last, I don't know, five or ten years, and you've seen it, we've kind of, entered into error, which is very uh, strong on testing and, and standards. Yeah. And so that has led to uh, much more test preparation and test prep and prompt practice. And I think that boys often write for each other, and whereas maybe girls are a little bit more willing to play the game or write for the teacher. Right. And you know, I think that boys really, I think that, that all that test preparation has really been harmful to writing classrooms, but I really think that boys have taken it on the chin because when boys write to get ready for a test, they can't share it with their friend, they can't share it with their, their dad or their mom or their uncle or grandpa. You know, it's something that kind of goes off in testing Never Never Land somewhere. So, um, and I also, and I just want to say one more thing, I think that we live in a very conservative time, um, you know, I mean, fear of terrorism, and people are very suspicious of boy writing, and, uh, you know, there's that no-tolerance rule for violence in school, which often means any violent writing gets really clamped down on. Let me ask you this. There's a new teacher out there somewhere listening. It's their first year teacher teaching, and they're having a conference with a student, and the student chose to write about gore, violence, or even farts. What can you tell <laughs> that new teacher? Well, I would say um, try to be <laughs> – that's a good question. I would say, uh, you know, try to be generous about what they want, want to write about and try not to, be, try not to judge them for what they're interested in. Oftentimes the things that boys want to write about, we cast an eye, not, not for the writing, but just for, like, why are you interested in this stuff. Um, and so I would say within reason to try to be uh, – generous and accepting and to try to widen the circle for what's um, acceptable to write about. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be a line in school. And um, sure, there are things that are absolutely are not to be allowed. Um, but like, you know, for example, and I think we should maybe and, and really to say to the, you know, to, to that teacher that we can talk about this stuff directly. For example, when you think about gore, um, I always, when I talk to kids in fifth grade and sixth grade, I always say, you know, guys, you know, to be really honest with you, a little bit goes a long way. You don't need a lot. And, you know, I might reference the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Telltale Heart. Okay, there's a murder in that story. It's a very famous story, but you don't see a lot of blood spurting out and, and guts spilling on the floor. You know what I mean? So I think that um, there's ways to talk. And, and, and when I've had those kind of discussions, the boys are leaning in, they're listening carefully, yep. and they understand. They understand that, like, there is a line. And, um, and, and the other thing I just want to mention is that one of the schools overseas did a book study uh, on my book, Boy Writers, and they were talking about the whole question of violent writing. And I, and I happened to be there and just participated in the in discussion. And the way they concluded the discussion, what they decided was, let's just give, boy, let's give boys a little bit more freedom and see what happens. So, like, rather than sort of prejudge what's going to happen, you know, let, let's just see, you know, because, you know, maybe we're just, I think there's often this fear that if we give the boys an inch, they're going to take a mile. Yeah. 
and um, maybe you know it's something that we can all we can all try it and see. Because I, I I really believe that with boy writers, you have to go with you have to go for engagement first, and the quality will come later. But if you don't engage the boys, if you don't get them interested and make them feel like the writing classroom is something for them, then you can teach them all the craft about writing in the world. But if they're not really if they're checked out already, then you you know they won't absorb it. Right. What country was that that you uh, observed that? It, in? Was, it was actually Vietnam, believe it or not. Really? Wow. Yeah, I've been doing um, I've been doing about one a year. I get invited to an international school, so my wife and I will go over and you know we'll extend, and it's it's been great. And and I will say that those international schools, which are Americans, you know, or or and so the kids, even if they're ethnically Vietnamese, they have American passports. Right. Um, you'll find those are really good schools, surprisingly good schools, because they don't have a lot of test pressures. And they have really good writing workshops and reading workshops. And um, so it's been, it's, the work itself is pleasurable, as well as being in a, in a country that I've always wanted to visit. Now, I first learned about you through Craft Lessons, probably in the late 90s, which is the book I have I use by far the most. Tell us a little bit about Craft Lessons and how it could benefit teachers listening to this podcast. Yeah, um, Craft Lessons is um, maybe one of our most popular books that Joanne, my wife and I wrote together, Joanne Portalupi, uh, who, by the way, was Lucy Cawkins' first trainer when she started the writing project. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, craft Lessons is, I think a lot of teachers, um, th- th- and they would tell you this themselves, that their repertoire of teaching strategies for writing is fairly thin and modest, and so this book will, it will teach teachers about writing, um, what are some of the essential elements of writing, and uh, we, al- we also show teachers how we would teach them. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting dance there because I'm not a big fan of scripted curriculum. I mean, I'm really not, but I think there's value in hearing exactly how someone like me or my wife would, would have taught those lessons. I know that when I started off by learning how to become a teacher, I followed Shelley Harwin around and watched her confer with kids and borrowed her language. So I think there's a stage of learning ourselves when we do emulate. I look at it as like this, you know, you're in a school, teaching is very isolating, but you've got, this book is sort of like having a really good teacher down the hallway, and you can walk down the hallway and poke your head in, right? and you won't, you won't necessarily use what you see that other teacher using, but, but you, might, you might use it, or you might tailor it to your own purposes. So um, the book has um, lots of you know, uh, good ideas on teaching writing that are drawn from, you know, children's literature. And I'm I'm hoping that you found it useful in your own teaching. And I still do to this day, yes. Thank you. Good. That's great. What is one thing a brand new teacher can do tomorrow morning in their classroom to help their students' writing? Well, um, this is one of those things that's got a a big thing and a little thing, but um, they can start writing themselves. You know, I, I really think it's important when you're learning anything, you know, and, you know, we're both, you and I have, I'm sure, heard this analogy made, but, like, you want to re- you want to learn from a practitioner, and I think the kids want to see a teacher who's not just talking about it, but actually walking Walk in the, the shoes walk, of writing. Sure. So just taking, the, taking the first five minutes, I know that's kind of a tease, uh, because, you know, you feel like you really can't sink yourself into the writing, but if kids, I mean, how many kids actually see an adult writing? So I think it's important they can see it, and um, also if the class gets noisy, which 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 it may, you can sort of say to the students, um, "Excuse me, folks, I'm, I'm having trouble hearing myself. Think <laughs> over here," and kids will respect that you're taking the same risk that they're taking. So the idea of discipline and sort of tone in the class is not like I want you to be quiet, but it's more like what kind of environment can we create so we could all do our best writing. So that's one thing, and um, the other thing is. Um, if I just might jump to the role of actually when, when, you, when you're walking around and you're having those writing conferences with, with children, um, with your students, I think it's really important to um, find something they're doing well and name it for them. And sometimes we feel ourselves under so much pressure, and I think that that's important, um, that we don't always just correct and push and nudge, but we also affirm what they're doing well. Right. So it's, it is important that the students see the teacher writing with their students and even reading with the students, which I know sometimes it's very busy during writing time, but definitely that goes a long way. How about one thing that a um, 
a common mistake you see teachers make in teaching their students writing? Um, well, um, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that this is kind of a maybe a little bit more general than you're, what you're asking, but I think that one of the problems in, in teaching um, is that we... Um, you know, the, the, well, the writing classroom, I think, is it, we're losing a lot of choice in the classroom. And um, that is one of the, the things that uh, my, le- my latest books, if you really go back to my last three or four books, they're really all about trying to sort of say kids need more choice. Boys need more choice. When I, you know, when I, going back to the boys just for a second, when I surveyed the boys, I surveyed about five or six or 700 boys. I can't remember how many, but a lot of them. In the la- one of the questions was to write in, write in this, fill in the blank, when we write in school, I really wish we could. And, you know, by far the biggest thing, the, the, the most common answer with the boys wrote in was write what we really want. Hmm, that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, and I, and, I, and I think that, frankly, boys, I mean, not just boys, but boys and girls are getting less writing in classrooms and less writing they have in, than they do, I'm sorry, less choice that they have in, in uh, reading. So, for example, when kids go to the library, they pick a book up. But when they go to writing classrooms, we have all these different genres or units they've got to go into. A lot of times they've got to, there's a certain arc about the way they have to, they have to approach it. And um, I really feel like the sizzle has gone out of some of the writing classrooms because we're really, we're, we've got too much of a heavy hand. We've got to give kids more choice. And, and, and choice means not just choice in what they write about, but also how they express themselves. That's an interesting point. I think tomorrow morning I'm going to do that with my students as an entry slip. When we write in school, I really wish we could blank. Yeah, I really be you know, that, that that kind of data is important, and and just to see, I'd be curious really to see what they said because sometimes what they'll say will surprise you. You know? Yeah, I just did that with um, from Kyle Schwartz's book. I wish my teacher knew. Yeah, and it was interesting. From I wish my teacher knew how to sing to I wish my teacher knew that I'm really a good kid, which was really touching. Wow. Ralph, you've written over 40 books that span from picture books, poetry books, novels, and writing books for both teachers and students. Do you have a favorite genre or category of book writing? That's a good question. Um, You know, I think um, somebody once said that a writer should specialize, and I have not specialized, you know, and I think that that's, Usually good, but there's probably some downside to that. But I love the challenge of a new genre. Like, I'd never written some of my novels, like Fig Pudding, were autobiographical novels, but I'd never written memoir until I wrote uh, Marshall Dreams. And um, so, anyway, um, I, love, I love fiction. I really love a great novel. Um, I, I will always be trying to write really good fiction my whole life, and it's something I aspire to do. Um, but... So I would say that's probably uh, my favorite genre, I, I, I suspect. But I also, you know, love poetry, and I love a, a picture book that's the magic when, when the illustrations and the story works really well. I mean, you know, that's really how I started getting interested in writing for kids. When I was working at the Writing Project, Lucy Calkins would send me to different classrooms to do demonstration teaching, and I'd drag a big bag of books around with me. And I'd read those books to kids to sort of give them some ideas of what they could do. And I started to fall in love with those beautiful picture books. And I realized that those books, those authors were creating a magic with their words. And it really, I saw it as an honorable thing and something that I wanted to do myself. Now, I just read your picture book about the circus to my son. And Mm. what are your thoughts on the circus announcing that they're closing shop, Ringling Brothers? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. And, you know, since you live in New York, you probably know that, um, I guess that they used to, with the Ringling Brothers Circus, they used to have, they have to close off the tunnel. They go through the head. tunnel, right. They had, to walk the, they had to walk the elephants through. Yep. I grew I up in New York City, and I remember that as a kid going yeah. to the circus. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, well, I I have mixed feelings about it. You know, um, I actually, um, I'm somewhat, I'm not, not a strident, but I mean, I, I'm an animal person, Um uh, I spent an amazing day at an elephant uh, nature preserve in uh, Thailand uh, that, that really just changed my life. So um, I think that uh, elephants are amazing creatures, and they they deserve to have a better life than just performing. Uh, on the other hand, um, 
things like the zoos and circuses are ways that some of us encounter these animals. You know, a lot of people are never going to go to Thailand. So, um, you know, it's like everything else is mixed, you know, um, but it's probably a sign of the times, right? Things are, things are always yeah. changing. I've just become a big fan of Cirque du Soleil. Um, they yeah, were here sure. in Queens over the uh, winter break, and it was an incredible show with just people, humans, no animals at all. They did a great job. Yeah, I saw, um, I saw Love uh, in Vegas, uh, uh, Cirque du Soleil, and with the, you know, with the, the, the acrobats and yes. all the, bits of the, the Beatles music, and it was really, really incredible. Yeah. Wow. Now, many of your books, you have writers such as Paul Fleischman, um, Jack Gantos, uh, Greg Trine, Jerry Spinelli. Who are some of the newest and latest writers that you would suggest our new teachers keep their eyes and ears on? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I am not one of these people that ha- feel like I have to read everything that comes out. Um, you know what I mean? And children's, like I read, I read widely. I mean, this is not a question you're asking me, but I read adult stuff. Uh, I just got a thrill that I'm looking forward to dipping into. Um, I read adult fiction. I read poetry. But I read, you know, I do read some some children's stuff, um, some young people stuff. Um, you know, I really think that, um, you know, some of the graphic novels are important. I think. I think a lot of the, the boys again are really yeah. they, they love that they love that genre. And I think that some, even like me, I was an English major in college, and I think maybe my instinct is to look down on that genre. Yep, but sometimes they're dismissed. Exactly, I couldn't agree yeah, more. Yeah, you know you. what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, some of those, some of those writers, and uh, you know, even like the guy that uh, Jared Krosoku does the Lunch Lady books. You know, for some of those kids, those books really engage them. Um, I also think that um, you know it is valid to say that children's literature is, and it's probably changing, but not fast enough. It's just pretty, pretty white, you know, and I'm white. And, you know, so, I mean, there's a lot of great white writers and there's nothing wrong with being a white writer. I don't feel like I have to apologize for it, but I think that like, you know, a book like uh, crossover by Kwame Alexander, when you're seeing the world from perspectives that other, you know, other perspectives, other, other ethnicities are important too. So, um, you know, um, I, I like I like to see those kind of books coming out. I think we need more of them. Jason Reynolds is a new black author that's doing some really good stuff. Um, but there's always going to be, you know, um, new writers, and uh, you know, and I and I think that um, one of the things is that some of the kids are always, you know, in, in your grade, fifth grade, that you teach. As you notice, these a lot of these kids when they, we try to hold them to middle grade novels, but they want to jump up and they want to read uh, YA. Yeah, yeah. And you know, how do you feel about I, that? Well, it's interesting because I'll tell you two quick things about it. One thing is that when I talk to fifth grade kids, and I say to the kids, you know, this is maybe a year or two ago, I say, "Have you read Hunger Games?" And the, and the kids just like, "Oh my God, yes!" And then I'll <laughs> say to the librarian. Do you have it? She says, no, we don't have it in the library here, <laughs> which I, th- I think is kind of funny. You know what I mean? I think you can, that is, yeah. <laughs> these, these are the books that kids are reading, but they can't, they're not allowed to read them in school or something. Um, I will say uh, I've written two young adult novels, and um, one thing that's interesting from a writer's perspective is that the world has become um, maybe a little bit more cynical or, I don't know, because of cable TV, um, Game of Thrones, and shows like Walking Dead, uh, you see that the world the world is darker, a little grittier, the, the entertainment. And so I think that that's reflected in children's literature, uh, young people's literature. So this, so books, young adult books today are darker, grittier. They're more sexual. Um, they would maybe be a little bit eyebrow-raising for a lot of uh, parents. and uh, But I think that young people kind of are expecting that because it sort of reflects the kind of the world that they're in nowadays. So... Um, I'm not saying that if that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's a fact. And if you're going to write books for kids in you know who are 13, 14, 15, 16, you have to be aware of that. We'll be right back after this message. Hey, how you doing? What's a nice little word that can really excite your kids? Crossword. That's right. And I want to tell you about this guy I know. He's uh, the crossword puzzle guy. That's right. You can find them at thecrosswordpuzzleguide.com. Did you know that crossword puzzles are done by 50 million people per week? 
That's right. So why can't you use crossword puzzles in your classroom to give your kids some uh, excitement? Crossword puzzles involve making inferences, evaluating choices, and drawing conclusions. And when students are done, they have that sense of uh, getting the job done, if you know what I mean. You know, students who resist traditional tests find crossword puzzles less uh, threatening and more like gameplay in the classroom. They're certainly better than the flashcards or review sessions and are often self-directed. The Crossword Puzzle Guy has a growing list of puzzles across all subject areas for your students to enjoy, from dinosaurs to Dr. Seuss. My guy will even create a custom crossword puzzle for your classroom. That's the Crossword Puzzle Guy at thecrosswordpuzzleguy.com and wherever you buy teacher-created materials online. What is Ralph Fletcher most excited about today as an educator and as a writing teacher? <laughs> Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, well, what I'm most excited about is uh, I have a book with, with Heinemann. It's called Joyrite. I, I guess what I'm really excited about is I think we've got to do a lot more with what I call low-stakes writing. Um, I think instead of the high-stakes writing, which in some ways is the pressure and it's what we assess and which often turns kids off, I think it's often in that low-stakes writing where we kids really discover their identities as writers. So um, one of the metaphors I'm using is the idea of a green belt in a community. You know, a lot of, a lot of the land in the world, and especially like in the, you know, your area has been developed, but, right. but planners understand that you've got to leave a green belt that's wild and so, that, you know, that has some of the essential elements that allows those species to survive. And I think that some of the kids in our classrooms especially the boys, are not really thriving in this more academic, constricted world of writing. So I think we've got to kind of create a writing green belt in the curriculum where kids can really value that kind of writing. So I'm, I'm, this is one of the things I'll be talking about for the next year or, or two or maybe longer. So I am excited about this. That sounds really and neat, and it's called Joyrite. Joyrite, yes. Ralph, before we say goodbye, tell us a little bit about your website, ralphfletcher.com. How is it arranged? How is it laid out? And what can our listeners expect to find at the website? Yeah, um, you know, it's like a, I'm probably like a lot of people. I don't probably update as much as I should, but it, um, it's got my contact information. It's got some biographical, biographical information. My website includes um, my speaking schedule, which is important if you ever want to see Ralph speak at one of the conferences nearby or maybe even add, add me to a, uh, add an author visit if I'm going to be in your area. And um, I include um, a, a, a section that I'm kind of happy with called Teacher Hangout, which... Oh, I love that section, of, yep. Yeah, it just has kind of a lot of the handouts that I use and, my, you know, uh, some resources and some lists and suggested, uh, you know, things that would be helpful for teachers. So, um, you know, because I, I, I do think that teaching is isolating for a lot of people. Um, and that's probably changing a little bit, you know, since like someone like you have been in the field, but I still think that... Especially uh, for the newer teachers, absolutely. Well, and I think, yeah, and I think that if we're going to engage those young women and young men in our feeling and, and keep them, re, re, you know, retain them, yes. we have to make it schools a stimulating place for them to con- continue learning. So I'm really all about trying to break down that isolation, that sense of isolation they feel. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, encouraging teachers to go to conferences, you know, staff development, um, all, but also, you know, reading professionally. And I, I like to say that I, I want to be part of that teacher's network so they don't feel isolated. So I want them to see me as a resource. And my website is um, is one of those uh, resources, yes. And they can do that at ralphfletcher.com. Ralph, how many appearances and book talks do you give on average each year? Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, um, I, I, maybe I'm underselling my, uh, understating this a little bit, but I, I like to say that I try to keep it to about five a month. Wow, that's four or five busy. a month. Um, but, but even yeah, as you know, that doesn't include the day that it takes me to fly someplace. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, some months you know that you know obviously people don't want to see you as much, like you know around December or the whatever. Holidays. But, but I find that. Uh, and I, and I do a combination of things. I speak at national conferences and occasionally international, but also I speak, uh, I come into schools as a vi- visiting author occasionally, where you know, the focus is not on me trying to help teachers with their instruction. The focus is on me working with kids, um, showing the kids my writing process, how I use my writer's notebook, and hopefully making connections between myself and things that they can use to make themselves better writers. 
So, Ralph, what are some of your other hobbies when you're not writing about writing? Well, um, in the last couple of years, I've become a serious nature photographer, which uh, was something that I wouldn't have predicted maybe five years ago. Um, going way back when I was living in New York City, my best friend um, was a photographer, a freelance photographer. And I think that the fact that I was close to the, to the world of photography, now that I've returned to it, makes it sort of uh, not, not intimidating. So... Um, I go on a lot of uh, trips, and I try to take pictures, and um, in some ways I use my camera as a kind of writer's notebook because it's a way for me to notice things, to capture things, and I think in some ways when you take a picture, it's almost like a moment in time where you really try to capture that bird with that light at that time of day, making that gesture, and in some ways it's very much like writing. Um, It's like creating a poem, like a fine, fond poem. But I would just say this, that in some ways I'm kind of a language person. You know, I, I speak at conferences, um, and I also write books. So uh, words are something I swim in all the time. And one of the things I think I like about photography is that it sort of taps into a part of my brain that's not connected to words. You know, it's about light and images and so it's sort of a nice kind of a, a respite from the word part of me. So I've really enjoyed it. I get up very early in the morning sometimes and go out and take pictures. And um, it's something that uh, I'm, I've become very passionate about. Wow. Now, what type of change do you think the photography world has seen from a digital period today to film maybe 10, 20 years ago? Oh, yeah. Tremendous difference. Tremendous difference. Um, uh, you know, yes. Uh but I would say that sometimes, you know, I this is kind of a running joke in my family or, you know, with my friends because when I'll, I'll post a picture on Facebook and somebody will write me a note and they'll say, you know, you know boy, your camera takes great pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but how many did you take to get that one great shot? Well, well but not only that, but I think that the, um, the, the uh, assumption is that it's the camera, the equipment that takes the good pictures. You know, it's sort of like me saying, well, gee, you know, you're, 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 um, your computer writes really good articles, you know. Well, now, I mean, of course, there is some, there's a germ of truth here. Having good equipment really does help you bring in the bird close or the animal close. But I always like to say that if you took somebody like, let's say somebody like you and I have known in our lifetime, like a, a great tennis player, like a John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors, even now, you could take that person and you can give him one of the old wooden rackets <laughs> they and, he'd do play it, yeah. and, he, and he'd beat you <laughs> six love, six love. Yeah. So I think that, you know, equipment is overrated. And I think that, you know, yes, it does allow you to, just like with writing, you, we write from abundance and then we sort of cut and we take a lot of it out. And that's the way, you know, wedding photographers work now. They'll take thousands and thousands of pictures to get that really cadre of a hundred really, really, really good pictures. So it allows you to do that, but I also think you have to still know your craft, and um, and it's very humbling, by the way. You know what I mean? It's like um, I could you could be really accomplished in one field, but then when you're taking pictures, you realize that you're you're starting out again. You know, Absolutely, you, you have to really you have to learn, and, it, and it's not it's 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 challenging, but it's also fun. Right, just like writing, if you have the passion for it, whether it be writing or photography, you're going to hopefully find your niche. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And maybe someday, by the way, you know, not that this has to happen because, uh, you know, I don't feel like I have to monetize the side of myself, but who knows? Maybe there'll be a day when some of my writing will be married with some of my photography and maybe I'll produce a book that will uh, contain them both. But that's just a fun thing to think about, um, you know, and I guess I do believe if you, if you follow something you're passionate about and you, and you put in that time what Malcolm Gladwell calls the, the 10,000 hours, that good things can happen. You know, it, it doesn't always mean that you're going to become successful at it, but it, there's a good chance that, you, that you'll find some success in it. So you enjoy taking primarily nature pictures? Yeah, I do. Although it's funny, when I go back and look at my pictures when we travel, I, have a, I really like candids, too. Um, I, I, um, again, it's sort of like what you said about me as, a, as an author. I'm sort of not specialized, and uh, maybe that's the way with it as a photographer. But I do seem to take a lot of nature pictures, um, you know, I, I, I worry about the natural world and, you know, that uh, some of these creatures may not be along, around forever, so it's just a, pr- a privilege to be with them. Are there any pictures online? On Instagram is uh, RalphPhoto17. So the word Ralph and then O-T-O-17. What is your Twitter handle, Ralph? Um, at Fletcher 
Ralph. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us here today on the New Teacher Podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was really fun talking to you. So please check the show notes at newteacher.org where you can find out more about Ralph Fletcher, his website, and schedule. Thank you, Ralph. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ralph. Please check the show notes page at newteacher.org to see all the links mentioned during the show, including the recent interest in photography that Ralph has taken up. The pictures he has are incredible. Next time here on the New Teacher Podcast, it's the National Teacher of the Year, Mandy Manning. Here's a clip of my talk with Mandy. What will you say to the president when you meet him? Well, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's it's tough. But, you know, I'm the only reason that I'm in the position that I am in is because of and for my students. And I recently had my students do a project in which they had the opportunity to write messages to the president and to his administration. And I think those letters are, are quite profound. And there are parts of those letters that I really think, cause I don't get to control whether or not he reads them right. or his administration reads them, but I do get to control what comes out of my own mouth. Yeah. And so because I'm there for my students and as a representative for my students, I will do my best to relay their messages to him that difference is not a deficit, not dangerous. It's, it provides perspective and clarity and that all of us together are what make the United States beautiful. That's Mandy Manning, who was just one of four finalists for the National Teacher of the Year. The other finalists were the New Jersey Teacher of the Year, Amy Anderson, who teaches sign language to regular ed students in place of having them take world language. Amy was my guest here on episode number 28 of the podcast. The other finalists who will be future guests here include Kara Ball, Dodia Teacher of the Year. Kara is an elementary STEM teacher with the Department of Defense. Jonathan Jurevic, Ohio Teacher of the Year. Jonathan teaches elementary art. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, please subscribe so you can receive all the latest episodes as soon as they're released wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for joining us here on the New Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Arna. Be well.